Hi, I'm Mark Richard, and you're listening to Pure Talk, the podcast where we talk about life, health, and living pure. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Alan Bauman. Dr. Bauman is a full-time hair transplant surgeon who founded his medical practice in Boca Raton, Florida in 1997. Since then, he's treated 20,000 patients, performed over 8,000 hair transplant surgeries, including one on his own father. Dr. Bauman was featured in Men's Health Magazine, Vogue, Good Morning America, and now the Pure Talk Podcast. Dr. Bauman tells us today all about how he became a hair transplant surgeon and how he helps dispel some of the common myths around hair loss. This is Pure Talk. Dr. Alan Bauman, welcome. Thank you for joining Pure Talk. You're actually our first international guest. Great. So I, that, that's a tip of, of some sort. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, speaking of, of international guests, I, I know you have a, a medical degree from the um, from the New York Medical School, um, but were you born in New York? Is that where So no, I'm, you I was born and raised in New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay, so, so it's Jersey boy. Yeah. Okay. So my grandparents had a, a condo that you could look out and see the New York skyline. Oh, great. And at that time, that would include also the Twin Towers. Of course. So I do remember um, being a young boy on their balcony, you know, looking out over the big city. Right. And also visiting my dad's parents yeah. who lived on the Lower East Side. So I always had very close ties to New York. Right. And so um, immediately school was going to be in New York. There, there was no choice. No. Actually, I went to college in California. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I studied psychobiology there. Okay. And then moved back to New York for medical school. Great. And your parents, anyone in, in the medical industry, what did, what did they do growing up? Sure. So my dad's a dentist. Uh, he's okay. still practicing 50 years if you need a good dentist in North Jersey. Well, look at that. Yeah. Wow. My parents still live in the house we grew up in. 50 years. And uh, my grandfather was a PhD. He okay. was uh, an organic chemist and had brought back some interesting technology from Europe. Uh, so he was an entrepreneur and uh, and a PhD yeah. uh, in you know that I remember. Right. And uh, my uncle's a gastroenterologist. And I have some cousins who are ENTs and so okay. forth. So, so this is but, in the um, blood. Yeah, sure. I, I think if, if you asked my grandmother when she was still alive, you know, when did Alan decide to become a doctor? She would have said, the day he was born. <laughs> right. So it was kind of preordained in the family that I was going to medical school. And I guess it was a good thing I was good at, you know, math, science, science and biology yeah. or something. For sure. Uh, yeah. And did you ever rebel against that? Was there any other inclination that you wanted to do something else? Well, yeah. So I was about eight or nine years old. I said, Grandma, what if I don't want to become a doctor? And she said with a very straight face, Alan, you can do whatever you want to do the day after you graduate medical school. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And so it just didn't uh, phase me, I guess. Um, you know, I figured out, you know, what I needed to do and, right. and to work with my strengths. I knew that I knew that medicine had wide opportunities mm -hmm. and I was always good with my hands. I always made like little plastic models and things like that with my dad when we were little. Sure. You know, those are my early childhood memories. We built um, HO train set together. So we we're always like tinkering and building things, taking things apart, putting things back together. Usually we would only have just a few pieces left over. Mm -hmm. You know, the dishwasher, right. the washing machine, you know, there's only a couple of parts that didn't fit back, you know. <laughs> right. Everything seemed to work out okay. No, but... Um, but uh, you know, my first my first inkling towards surgery was watching a procedure when I was a teenager mm -hmm. at Beth Israel Medical Center. Okay, and that was my first uh, experience going with 
really my first mentor who yeah. was a very prominent plastic surgeon in the city and he, right. he introduced me to surgery to introduce you to surgery and then you said the medical system opens up to a, a wealth of different opportunities so where did hair come in is that were you in medical school thinking i want to treat hair or or when did that become a, a thought so in college and in medical school my only thought about hair was that i liked it and that i wanted to grow it really long of course so i had really long hair <laughs> i had a ponytail in in uh in medical school and um and uh, the other only the only other thing i knew about hair was that i watched my dad go bald right. when i was in high school mm -hmm. and so i always thought in the back of my mind i didn't know anything about treatments or procedures or anything like that at that time but i always remember that he struggled with his hair loss situation and sure. you know he used some lopes magic lotions and stuff that he got prescription and eventually he lost a lot of hair and, and went into a hairpiece and so mm -hmm. he wore a hairpiece for many many years and i always thought as a as a as a high schooler and even at college age and and uh, medical school that i wanted to keep my hair mm -hmm. i liked my hair and um but that was kind of the extent of it in, right. until i learned more about surgery of course wow and then from there, you just took off into to researching hair. So it was really your father that drove you into into the, the hair business. So yeah, that was an early education of, yeah. of the importance of hair. And I felt it. You know, I, I knew I wanted to keep my hair. I didn't know really what treatments or procedures were available. But when right. I was an intern um, in residency as, as a general surgeon, thinking about going into plastics, I learned from a patient who had had a hair transplant. And mm -hmm. I was literally unable to tell that he had had a hair transplant and I asked him in this casual conversation as I'm doing his intake for some other procedure in the, that he was having yeah. I said you know do you mind if I ask you about your hair what you know what what's going on there how you know where did you have your hair transplanted and he said up in Toronto and I said, well, that's interesting, but I really wanted to know where on your head. <laughs> right. And so he was telling me in layman's terms about single follicle implantation yeah. and the artistry that was used and the care that he received from that surgeon. Mm -hmm. And he was delighted to share all of that information with me because – for me, it was shocking because I thought hair transplants were plugs and yeah. that you would, why would you everybody ever want to do that? I mean, it just didn't seem like a viable option. So right. I learned a lot from that very brief early on interaction with that patient who had, mm -hmm. had some work done that maybe I should stick that in the back of my mind. If I'm going to become a plastic surgeon who mainly treats women, I would assume, um, maybe I should learn about this hair transplant technology. So I'll have some male patients to work on. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of how my journey got started. And, you know, it's, it went from there to visiting different um, cosmetic surgery um, lectures, seminars, conferences, expos, and things like that mm -hmm. to learn more about plastic surgery and also hair transplantation. And the more that I learned, the more that I liked, and right. the more that I got interested in it. And yeah. it just seemed to, um, to take over my brain to the point where I wanted to find someone who I could kind of learn from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, another mentor aside from my plastic surgery mentor who was trying to groom me to take over his practice. It didn't really work out. <laughs> um, but I did find a physician um, that I was able to to meet with and, and to learn from. And I, I spent a Great. year in fellowship training in hair transplantation. Wow. And I always thought it was going to be a short thing, just learn the technique and then go back to my regular, you know, pathway. Yeah. And at the end of all of that, after I learned it, I was like, I just want to do this full time. Yeah. And it seemed very bizarre to most people who I mentioned it to because no one had ever really heard of a hair transplant looking natural before in the mid 1990s. Well, it just exactly. it, it hardly existed. Yeah. You know? Well, do you, do you think of yourself on that note? Do you think of yourself kind of as an artist as well? Because there is such an art to it, right? To 
you're you're taking such uh, such a prominent thing in someone's life that they're really attached to, uh, and and now giving it back to them, right? And it has to, it's it's something they see every day. It's something people who look at them see every day. Um, so you're kind of an artist, right? Well, it, there's a huge amount of art, and I you know I've been quoted many times saying the procedure is ninety percent art and ten percent technology. I sure. mean, you need to have the right tools. You know, mm-hmm. a painter needs to have the right paintbrushes and canvas and oils to make his work come to life. Yeah. But he also has to have some appreciation for mother nature and for beauty, especially if you're going to recreate something that looks 100% natural. Of course. And so, I mean, we I spent a lot of time talking about my dad, you know, as a dentist, my grandfather, a PhD, but one of my early childhood memories is also my mom, the smell of my mom's oil paints. Hmm. So I remember in our first home, the home that I was basically born and raised in, it was a small apartment above my dad's dental office. And I remember smelling those those oil paints that my mom was using to paint a picture of something. I don't remember even what it was, maybe a vase with flowers or something like that. Right, right. And so I remember that very vividly. So I'm hoping that maybe somewhere the DNA got together, you know, Just, um, between the, um, you know, my mom's oil painting skills and my dad's, you know, yeah. dental dexterity, I guess, or lack of a better way to explain it. Right. And, you and know, it's to come help. together to create this. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other part of it is really changing people's lives. Right. You know, because when it all comes down to it, you can work hard on, on this part of the process. And we get caught up in the nuance of, you know, how we do the local anesthetic and, and how we take care of the grafts while they're outside of the body and what's the right wavelength of laser to use and what platelet concentration is going to give us the best regrowth and yeah. all of these, you know, what dosage and timing of, of the medications and pharmaceuticals and how do we nuance the the the, the ratios of anti-inflammatory with uh, with with pro hair growth treatments topically and all of that right but at the end of the day when someone wakes up and looks at themselves with a thicker fuller healthier head of hair mm-hmm. um, where they didn't have it before that's the exciting part of it and that's that's where the magic happens when they wake up in the morning they look in the mirror and they can give themselves a big smile right and as my dad used to say look sharp and feel sharp all at the same time you that's know that's great Let's delve into that a little bit. What do, what do you think it is? I mean, this day and age, it seems like everyone's trying to get rid of hair on their body except for on top of their head, right? So what do you think that psychological connection with the hair on our head is and and where that comes from? So like, why is hair so important? Yeah. Oh, well, it's evolution. It's right. obvious because hair is one of the hardest working hair follicles are mm-hmm. one of the hardest working, most highly metabolic cell populations in your body. Okay. So it's very, very sensitive mm-hmm. to a lot of different factors, wellness right. factors. Yeah. You know, how well you eat or sleep or deal with stress, how much inflammation is going on in your body, mm-hmm. you know, all of these nuances. And obviously there are so many ways to poison your hair between uh, medications that you could take and, and things you could do to torture the hair fibers once it's growing, you know, right. with chemicals and heat and all that business. But the point is, is that... When you have a thick, full, healthy head of hair, you're displaying to the opposite sex that you are healthy and virile and viable and that you're a good mate to continue on to procreate and uh, to pass along for sure and procreate, you know, and, and to potentiate the species, yes. you know, to yeah, yeah. Uh, to keep things moving along. Right. So, so I think Darwin has a hand in that okay. <laughs> um, way, way back. Yes. Obviously, you don't need a full head of hair right. to live a healthy life. No. But I think because the hair follicle is such a sensitive organ. Um, to age and, and all these other factors that we mm-hmm. talked about, that that's why it's become important, um, embedded in our brains psychologically for, right. m- for many people, not, a, not everyone, not every, but, no. but, but, you know, for many people that it's a sign of youth and health 
and virility and fertility. And right. That's that's why it's important. It's at the top of the list of everyone's dating profile, isn't it? Must have <laughs> must have a head of hair. That's well, really... that's interesting. So you know, years ago, it used to be um, uh, the I don't know the, the dating pages or there used to be it literally used to be like a want ad, right? In the mm-hmm. in the papers. Okay. You know, when I was young. And yeah, and so the the you know women would write you know full head of hair. That's what they were looking for. Great. You know? Yeah, interesting. The dating pages. Right. Know, now it's all online. But, yeah, exactly. Know, so I just dated myself. But <laughs> that, uh, that's yeah, fine. I pretended I knew what the dating pages were. That's all right. That's right. okay. Um, so there's a you little just got to know, I guess, which I mean, I've been married for 20 something years. So yeah. which way do you have to swipe if you like? <laughs> right. I think it's uh, up, down, I'm, even that one. Left or sure. right. No, it's, it's something just, left or it right. It is. It's swipe right. Yeah. Swipe if, right. Is that for, what, yeah. Thumbs up. Is swipe right. right. Is good. Okay. Right? So yeah. So hair swipe right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I don't know if left-handed people are a little bit put off by that. Why isn't it swipe left? The left, yeah. left-handed people are always getting the shaft, right? Yeah. Sure. Um, there's been a lot of uh, medical treatments that have, have been suggested, you know, maybe lotions or snake oils or, or things like that. Um, are those things of the past now? Can those still, do those still work maybe in treating treating hair loss? So, re- so before we had FDA approved treatments, right? If you go back to the the 60s and before. So I'm talking, you know, in the early days of medicine, right? right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1900s, so the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s, yeah. and even into the 70s, um, there were no rules and regulations. So there was just all kinds of crazy talk out there okay. as to what, and you could sell anything, snake oil, and no one would tell you anything different. And it was buyer beware, yeah. consumer beware. Right. So today, we're in a totally different realm. Not only do we have viable treatment options, but we can track and monitor how well they're going to work. So we can totally personalize your treatment regimen, Mm -hmm. and then we can track it over time with data. And that's really what, like, you know, I think of it as like a bit of like biohacking your hair follicle, you know, Mm -hmm. just like I do with my sleep and a lot of people do with their, you know, their bike rides and all of that business, you know, how many calories they're intaking or what have you. Um, we can biohack your hair follicle today right. and truly show you way before it's even noticeable to the naked eye mm-hmm. that you have improvements. Wow. So you don't have to guess. If someone is telling you, hey, try this lotion. Yeah. You know, someone comes to me in my in my um, clinic and in, into our hair check zone, as we call it, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, doc, yeah, my... my my colorist or my, you know, my stylist says I should be using this kind of shampoo and this kind of tonic and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, okay. I mean, it might do something. Let's measure it. Yeah. So let's see. You don't have to start anything new. We can just do what you've been doing and see if it's changing your hair. Look, if your hair is still getting worse, mm-hmm. then that treatment, whatever was recommended to you, probably is not working or it's not the right treatment for you. Of course. Yeah. Simple as that. So yeah, we're in a totally different age of snake. We're not. We're past the snake oil phase. Right. That's not to say that there aren't treatments that work better than others out there. That's not to say that you know you go on on your Instagram or Facebook feed, you're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff pop up because there's no regulations there, at least not yet, right. in terms of what people can say about you know making claims with shampoos and things like that, and mm-hmm. even devices and so forth. But what you will find out there is a variety of tools and treatments, and but you have to find first a physician who can diagnose your problem. And then put together a treatment plan. Right, for sure. That's the key. It's unfortunate that it's such a um, a big problem for a lot of people that they'll try anything, right? Anyone will tr- try anything to, even if it is a snake oil, right? Where there was no testing, I'm sure, for, for that back in the day. They just thought, oh, this might work, throw it on. Um, 
that's got to be it does that does that hurt you in a way that so many people don't know that there's a, a viable tested solution that they could turn to but and yet they're just so desperate for something that yeah. they turn to things that that aren't going to work so the desperation speaks to the the emotional situation I should say that, mm-hmm. that is going on when you realize that you're losing your hair you know, for men seeing their hairline recede backwards seeing the weaker thinner wispier hair or yes. noticing that bald spot on a camera at 7-Eleven or something right. or in an elevator you know yeah. that's not a good thing and and panic can set in and for women as well they're seeing excessive shedding or they're seeing some scalp shining through or they're seeing that they have to change their hairstyle mm-hmm. you know immediately they think that there's some kind of miracle that they can do, you know, to choose a vitamin or to get a blood test to find out what, you know, nutrient they're missing right, or, right. you know, or what, what level is out of whack, you know, in their serum and, and try to fix that mm-hmm. when it's really, um, you know, that, that, that can really lead you down the wrong path. Right. So the panic and then the internet shopping and then the doctor shopping and, and all of the different like low hanging fruits. And that's why those those shampoos and lotions and potions, you know, those are businesses that I guess, you know, make money because right. they can fool a lot of people really quickly. Yes. You know. And the common person, unfortunately, and I think it's kind of a maybe an epidemic in the medical system to begin with, so many people are just focused on covering up the problem rather than looking at what's actually causing it. And so, right, and so something like a lotion is maybe going to mask over the issue for a little while, but it's not actually getting to the root of why you're losing your hair. Right. And actually, when it comes to hair, there are so many things that people can do honestly to cover yeah. it up i mean you know there's powders and sprays and different gels to, to basically style your hair different you know you can you can you can you can almost paint your scalp right. today and yeah. uh, and get away with it and, and unfortunately what that does is it delays treatment so the tr- the really true blue treatment options that we have the mm-hmm. viable tried and true stuff all of that works best when at the earliest possible phase, before the follicle's dead and gone, before right. it's on life support and one foot in the morgue, you know? Yeah. So the, the more the patient delays, mm-hmm. the the less successful they're going to be with the, the treatment regimen, of course. honestly. So, um, the, or they're going to need more invasive procedures, like a hair transplant, to fix it. Yeah. Before we move on from this topic, one last Rogaine. Yeah. Plus, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, that's got to be the most popular, right, out there? Yeah, so Rogaine is made of minoxidil. Okay. But Rogaine was rated by Consumer Reports a couple years back as the most disappointing hair growth treatment ever. Interesting. And I've I've never heard that report. Yeah, so that that was an interesting report. Now, remember that minoxidil was the first FDA-approved drug, so there's a lot of great science behind it. And minoxidil does work to grow hair thicker, stronger, better. It keeps hair follicles that are weak in the growing phase. Mm -hmm. It turns on hair follicles that have turned off prematurely. And the longer you keep a follicle in the growing phase, the thicker the hair fiber becomes over time. So minoxidil does work, but here's the catch. You have to use it consistently. Mm -hmm. You have to use it for an extended period of time, really forever if you start. Mm And in the beginning, like, let's say you buy a, a, a three-pack of Rogaine, okay, that's only 90 days. Yeah. For most people, that's too soon to be able to judge if it's actually working. So right. you've done your 90 days of Rogaine, and you're looking in the mirror, and you're like, I don't think I look any different. And you're right. You don't. Yeah. You yeah. would need a tool, mm-hmm. like a hair check device, a trichometer, something that would measure cross-sectional bundle to know, in most cases, right. that it's working. And I think that's surprising to most people that they thought that, you know, a month or two, they should know. Yeah. It's not the case. No, no. That's like spending a day in the gym. It's not going to change you. So um, just to finish off, Rogaine over-the-counter or generic versions, foams, 2%, 5% solutions and all of that are 
typically made with the same FDA-approved recipe from 40 years ago, right. which is propylene glycol. Right. Nasty, greasy, gooey stuff. And the problem with minoxidil is it's, it's fertilizer. Mm-hmm. But So you don't want to get it on the plants. You need to get it into the soil, if you right. catch my analogy. Of course. So if it's foamy and you're getting it all over your hair, you're actually lucky enough to have some hair left that it could actually work. Mm-hmm. Chances are your rocaine foam is getting all over your hair, not getting into the scalp. So it's not even getting to where you need it to be. Interesting. So it's yeah. a big problem. For so, sure. So uh, compounded versions of minoxidil are wildly popular now. Why? Because they make it more palatable to the scalp, mm-hmm. a lot less irritating to the skin, much less greasy or gooey. Right. They contain hair conditioners, scalp conditioners, other ingredients to make the minoxidil work better, penetrating agents, mm-hmm. so that your 5% liquid in the bottle now works like 10% on your skin right. without making it a gooey, greasy, creamy, sticky mess. Yeah. And that's Formula 82M. Right. And that is the most popular compounded minoxidil on the planet. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful. It's the most powerful topical I've ever seen. So Rogaine, thumbs down. Right. But good start. Right. Compounded topical formula 82M, thumbs up. There you go. Yeah, but you need a prescription. So you need to find a doctor to get that. Of course. Yeah. Right. Good news, it's coming to Canada. Absolutely. So that's what we're doing here. Right. Probably One brought in things. by uh, Pure Pharmacy. Yeah, that's there right. There it is. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning... Um, male patients like so the hair loss maybe came in as as something that that males would be more attracted to or or, you know typically where is that Uh, a lot of males just say you know uh, if they're losing their hair a lot of them will just say oh it's hereditary but is there something more behind that just to say it's hereditary what's actually going on to cause that to being pushed down from generation to generation so what you're inheriting in male pattern hair loss Mm -hmm. is the genetic sensitivity to the body's hormones. Okay. So in your body, you've got testosterone. That's the traditional male hormone. Yeah. And testosterone gets broken down into DHT, dihydrotestosterone. And okay. DHT is in everyone. Yeah. It's in men and it's in women too. Smaller amounts, but it's in everybody. Mm-hmm. When you are suffering from male pattern hair loss, what you've inherited is those follicles are pre-programmed to be exquisitely sensitive to DHT over time. Okay. So DHT is the messenger of death. And when you when those follicles hear that message over and over and over again, they start to get weaker, thinner, wispier, and so forth. Right. Until eventually the follicle miniaturizes so far that it doesn't make a hair that is visible with the naked eye. And it does not make a hair that covers the skin. It ends up making a hair that we call vellus hair. Okay. The good news is that there's a lot of time in between, or at least most of the time. There's a lot of time between a good, strong, healthy follicle and a vellus hair. Right. You know, miniaturized hair that's basically a follicle that's beyond repair. Okay. So the key is to intervene in that middle time. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that you could um, be doing which could exacerbate male pattern hair loss. And a lot of guys don't realize, like when they go on testosterone replacement or if they're doing a heavy athletic workout regimen. A lot of my professional athletes, college athletes, are doing high resistance training and things like that. Yeah, That's accelerating and increasing the amount of endogenous testosterone in the body and that's going to again spill over into DHT mm-hmm. and DHT is going to cause those follicles to miniaturize. So you could accelerate your male pattern hair loss um, smoking cigarettes, um, you know, those uh, 
heavy duty, um, high impact workouts, right. athletic workouts, yeah. uh, by replacing testosterone or doing things that would increase your own natural testosterone or increase your own DHT, like supplements like creatine that mm -hmm. people use for workouts, yeah. is well known to increase DHT production in the body. Right. So that's going to move you through the process a lot more quickly. Right. So do you yeah. want to have a six pack or a full head of hair? You need to make well, that choice at some point? Well, it shouldn't be a choice. And many of my patients, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Of course. And so yeah. in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, where my practice, Bauman Medical Group, is located, mm -hmm. we have many patients who want to look good and feel good and, and live long and do all of that. So so there's a happy medium, but is a bit of a tug of war. Right. Yeah. So we have to find the sweet spot. And isn't that the truth with everything in medicine, that there is some kind of nuance, that it's not just a cookbook? Mm-hmm. You can't just look it up on the internet. What's my correct testosterone level? You actually have to talk to the patients to figure this out. Yeah. And so it's the same thing, um, you know, for a patient who comes in who's a young guy who's, you know, in his 20s with male pattern hair loss or a guy who's 50 who's on hormone replacement therapy. There's still that conversation about what are the things that we could be doing um, holistically mm -hmm. to help prevent the hair loss process. For sure. Well, at the same time, we're going to use whether it be pharmaceuticals or non-chemical treatments, red light therapy or cell therapy, stem cell treatments, you name it. Right. You know, we're going to throw everything with the kitchen sink at it and figure yeah. out what you're able to work with and what works for you right. to get the job done. Are those uh, are those hereditary factors? Are they getting worse by each generation? Does what do, or does it does it depend? Hmm. And I'm assuming you're asking me that because maybe you you think that you're seeing more hair loss out there, or is it that people are talking about hair loss more? I what think, do you it's, think I think it's both. I think it's out there a lot more, mm -hmm. um, and you also see it happening a lot more. I mean, I have a couple of friends who are quite a few years younger than me. Uh, and and already it's 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 Extensive gone for loss, them, right? right? And and they've said that their father or or uncles you know didn't see it this soon in, right, in them. Right. So what are the things in modern life that could be accelerating hair loss? And so I, I, you know I'll never say that you know it can be it can't be that we have the same incidence. I don't know. Maybe there are other things. Maybe it's the hormones in the in the food supply. You mm -hmm. know, in our in our cattle or in our you know in our in our know, um, poultry, whatever, you right. know, that are being used to increase production or increase size, you know, maybe there is some kind of an impact there. We're certainly seeing um, women go through puberty earlier. So young girls are, are the age is, is decreasing yeah. that puberty is starting. So sure. what is happening there? Is it is it hormones in our food supply? Or is it other factors in modern life socially, like increased stress, less sleep, um, you know, poor nutrition, uh, you know, there's a variety mm -hmm. of different things, increased inflammation. Are we allergic to more things than we used to be? Right. You know, so there's a lot of wellness factors, I think, that play into, again, that super sensitive hair follicle yes. that we've got, you know, and you're only got about 150,000 of them maybe starting out on the top of your head and that's it, right. you know, yeah. and once they're gone, they're gone. It's a, you know, as of this point, we don't have hair cloning yet. We're right. working on it, but we don't have it yet. So it's a very valuable, non-renewable resource that we have to try to protect. Of course, yeah. So we talked about uh, treating hair loss. Let's move to hair transplants. And maybe maybe just a, a blunt question to start. I mean, does it actually work and, and is it permanent? So hair transplants work, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you take a hair follicle from the correct location, and that, what that would mean in the back of the scalp where the hair follicles are genetically programmed to live forever, okay. those follicles, when we move that follicle from that location to another location that had hair loss, mm -hmm. that new follicle will live and grow there permanently, or relatively right. permanently. Okay. Um, and the reason is because of the concept of donor dominance. 
And so that theory or concept of donor dominance means that that follicle remembers from whence it came. Okay. So it's immune to the effects of male pattern hair loss. It's going to live and grow up there forever in that new location. Right. So the transplanted hairs are relatively permanent. And there are some cases in some patients uh, as they get to extensive, you know, up there in age where you can see a thinning of all hair. Um, and obviously that may be different than the male pattern hair loss process. That may be something different that's going on as they age yeah. to, you know, become elderly. Um, but what we would say is that for male pattern hair loss, those follicles are immune to DHT. They're going to okay. live and grow there forever. So yes, yeah. it does work. Right. Hair transplants work. Now it's also not something that's, that's brand new, right? So what do you say Correct. that the hair transplants now to hair transplants back in the day, what's, what's sort of maybe some, some key differences between the two? Yeah. So, um, the co- most common myth is a hair transplant is pluggy. So the original right. hair transplants in this part of the world, at least in the 1950s and 60s, 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s, were dealing with plugs of hair. So that was 30 or 40 hairs growing out of a punch that was uh, harvested using a big biopsy tool. I'm talking about a tool the size of a pencil eraser. Right. So that's a pretty big chunk. No kidding. Right. And yeah. so if you put those chunks in rows into a bald area, you basically get the old-fashioned cornrows. Of course you are. And you've seen them, um, you know, professional uh, ball players, uh, coaches on some professional teams, even many prominent politicians over the years have had yes. those plugs done. Yeah. And it... It looked painful, and honestly, back in the day, before really good local anesthetic, it probably was painful. Jeez, yeah. But you know, today the technology is completely different. Right. So we went from plugs to harvesting a strip back in the let's say '80s and '90s mm-hmm. to get the hair follicles, and then in the 2000s we moved to a technique called FUE, follicular unit extraction or excision. Okay. And basically, what that enables us to do is instead of taking out 30 or 40 hairs at a time with a big chunk of a pencil eraser as a as a tool right. we're using something that's smaller than the tip of a ballpoint pen to take out individual follicular units which mm-hmm. could be as small as a single hair follicle yeah so you're taking out that single follicle and then you can now reimplant that in an artistic way in a in a way that is going to create something that looks soft and natural and uh and again as we said permanent and we can do that by the way with modern local anesthesia so that you won't feel it at all. Right. You won't feel anything that we're doing once the anesthetic is in place. Yeah. And the way that we place the local anesthetic is very nuanced uh, to keep you comfortable during that process as well. So, so it's incredibly non-invasive then, the whole, the whole correct. technology. So today, it, we're not dealing with stitches or staples, at least in the vast majority of clinics out there. Um, we're dealing with these minimally invasive styles of harvesting, this FUE style. And there's right. a lot of different tools out there. There's Neograft, there's SmartGraft, there's even the robot called Artis. Okay. Um, but all of these tools are designed to help us perform FUE better. Right, right, right. And obviously, the the comfort of your patient is is going to be your top priority. And so high, in fact, that I believe is it true that you actually did a hair transplant on your own father? Absolutely, that, that is correct. Yes. And my father in law, actually. Oh, okay. Um. So yeah, both of them got hair transplants at my clinic, and the patient experience is so important. It's actually in the tagline for the practice right you know the ultimate hair restoration experience and that means comfortable yeah that uh yes we're going to get the job done in a way that's natural and nor- and looks normal and not contrived mm-hmm. not artificial but the process itself when you sit in the chairs um that we have 
in, that we do our hair transplants in, they're comfortable. They're mm-hmm. designed for you to be, you're going to be in there for six hours, you right. know, um, with bathroom breaks and, you know, we'll give you a break for lunch and all that. And sure. you're going to be watching movies and we have everything from blankets and pillows and foam and you name it to keep you comfortable. Right. But um, it's going to be a comfortable experience. It's not a torture chamber. It's not going to be like getting a tattoo for six hours. Yeah. You know, it's not like that at all. You're not going to feel anything while we're working and we're going to give you a little bit of sedation, some medication for relaxation. We're yeah. going to put on some, if you want to watch the news, great. If you want to watch something more relaxing, like nature videos, that's cool too. Yeah. You know, Mother Earth, Nature Earth, whatever, you know, yeah. it's all fine and good. It's its own little spa over there you have. It it's is. Great. And we even got the aromatherapy going of now. Of course. Because <laughs> if, you, um, if, you did the, if you do the research in the clinical literature now, you'll find that many pre- and post-operative um, recovery rooms and things like that, these areas where patients are being treated when they're either going into surgery or going out of surgery, there's actually data that shows that when you apply the specific types of aromatherapy, mm-hmm. like lavender, for example, um, you use less anesthesia, and the patient rate the procedures as less painful and less uncomfortable and are rating it as more relaxing. Interesting. So I'm a huge fan. Now, I don't want the staff to become too relaxed well, no. during their proce- <laughs> during the procedures or myself, you know. Right. But no, I mean, we're, we're focused in doing our business. If the patient is comfortable, then the procedure goes much more smoothly. Right. Blood pressure stays low. We don't have as much, we don't need to use as much local anesthetic. So it's really, really an amazing thing. Yeah. When you spend a little bit extra time on the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the experience, it's amazing how that changes the game. It's a tipping point. It's really like a small tipping point for the procedure that for sure. that, that we realized, you know, probably about eight or ten years ago now. Right. Already. And you're going to use everything you can to gain an advantage. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the name. That's exactly how I treat every every part of this procedure. Whether it's how we do the harvesting of the hair follicles, how we care for the follicles while they're outside of the body. Do you know right. what is the solution? What is the temperature? Mm-hmm. What is the the ratio of of these different storage solutions that are used to to transport um, hearts and lungs across the country that I'm using in my hair transplant clinic. Right. You know. Yeah. And light therapy. When to apply the light on the grafts, on the scalp, on the healing phase, mm-hmm. and all of that. You know, those are all small little nuances that are well wrought now. Right. Over nine thousand procedures that we've done in the wow. past twenty years. Nine thousand. That's incredible. That's great. I'd, I've heard of a, a term of PRP vampire growth. Can you explain that? Yeah, so a vampire is. treatment is um, that that hit the airwaves as soon as Kim Kardashian had it done on her face. I didn't want to bring it up, but <laughs> oh, you do, are we avoiding the Kardashians? <laughs> no, okay. no, 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 okay. So um, they have enough publicity. Yeah, that's for what sure, it is. for yeah. sure. But you know, it, it it's it's important because um, it does bring that uh, technology to life. Really, when someone that you um, see in the media has had the procedure or, or treatment done. So Kim Kardashian had a vampire facelift, which is the use of PRP, platelet-rich plasma, mm-hmm. for skin rejuvenation. And PRP has been used in cardiothoracic surgery and uh, you know, for diabetic ulcers and in, in wound healing and in uh, stem cell or in cell therapy treatments in mm-hmm. sports medicine, orthopedics. Just about every major athlete has had some kind of PRP treatment. Right. And what we're doing is we're leveraging – the reason why it's called a vampire is because it's coming from the blood. So platelets okay. yep. are cell fragments. They're part of the formed components mm-hmm. that are in the blood. And you're carrying a bunch of them around. About two hundred thousand per microliter wow. is what you've got in your in your blood supply right now. And if I take a blood sample, I can process it in a very specific way to leverage those very very powerful growth factors that are inside the platelets, mm-hmm. leverage them to do our bidding, 
you know, mm-hmm. not just a clot blood if you get a paper cut on this on your show notes there, sure, yeah, you know, yeah. but, um, you know, we're going to use that technology to stimulate the hair follicles. Hmm. So I don't know if it was a coincidence or, you know, just good luck, but the growth factors that are locked away inside the platelets that trigger tissue regeneration and repair are the same molecules that message hair follicles to stay growing and to turn on and grow. Right. So we really lucked out that it's something that could work. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess it's a little tongue-in-cheek because we do know that things that work to stimulate wound healing generally work also in the close cousins of hair follicles and the fibroblasts that make up those kinds of cell populations. So okay. it's not such a far stretch. Right. Low-level laser therapies in that category um, and a number of other things as well. Right. But uh, so platelet-rich plasma is a lunchtime type treatment. We're mm-hmm. gonna we're gonna concentrate those platelets in a very special and nuanced way to get the exact concentration that we want, that we know will work to stimulate the follicles. And in the t- area of tissue regeneration and regenerative medicine, we need to have cells, signals, and scaffolds. That's like the magical troika or triad, if you will, right, of right. the things that do the work okay. in regenerative medicine. So. When we put the platelets together with cells and um, and use a scaffold, whether it be uh, placental tissue or pork bladder matrix, these are the types of things that work together to give us a boost of hair growth mm-hmm. that will last. In our practice, we've measured 10 to 14 months of boost before it starts to plateau down and, and start to drift downward. And in some cases, up to two years of wow. boost. Jeez. Yeah. Other practices which don't use or don't focus on the correct concentration or the use of these in nuanced scaffolds mm-hmm. with the PRP are going to get a shorter timeline. They're going to get about four to six weeks worth of boost, and then they're going to have to repeat it. So a lot of practices, like for skin, for example, mm-hmm. it's just plain PRP. You're going to have to come back every month. Right. Yeah. So you touch on something. Your concentration of PRP, what maybe makes that different than what someone else is using? Oh, so yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a big difference. And we've used probably almost a dozen different types of PRP protocols over okay. the past 10 years and 6,000 PRP treatments. Mm-hmm. So again, this is another well-wrought area where we've done a lot of learning up, uh, up the learning curve, so to speak, yeah. basically from just repetition. And so um, the, the, the spin process that we use is very nuanced. And so instead of just spinning a test tube, if you just let a test tube sit in the fridge, for example, overnight, it'll separate out its components according to weight. So you'll have the red blood cells at the bottom. Right. You'll have the white blood cells and, and the platelets in the next layer. And then you'll have the plasma, which and has all of the other electrolytes and such uh, diluted in it up mm-hmm. at the top, the clear yellow. And so years ago, we used to just spin the test tube and extract the top layers yeah. and leave the red blood cells behind. But in, if you do it that way, or if you use a gel separator tube, mm-hmm. you will actually lose a lot of platelets and you will not be able to concentrate the platelets. Right. as much as you, if you were able to do what we call a dual spin. Hmm. So our process and protocol is called the dual spin process. And what we do is the first spin takes off the red blood cells. And so we're left with the platelets and the plasma. Mm-hmm. And we spin that, that plasma suspension, to take the platelets all the way down, basically get a platelet pancake at the bottom of the, of the cylinder. Okay. We can take off as much of the other plasma as we want and reconstitute what's left. And yeah. so it gives us a much higher concentration of platelets than if we just did like a, a, a test tube or a gel separator. Um, and it's a, a big order of magnitude. So mm-hmm. a gel separator tube will give you about two to three time platelet concentration, which is basically just the same calculation as if you just took out the red blood cells and that was it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the dual spin process, if we want 
um, we can create 10 or 20 times platelet concentration. But what we know from the clinical literature is that there's a specific concentration um, curve or zone that gives us the best new blood vessel formation and gives us the best mobilization of stem cells. And right. so that's the sweet spot. Wow. So that's 1.5 million platelets per microliter, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So one, let's call it 1.4 to 1.6, right? Yeah. So that's where we're going to aim for when we do our protocol. Yeah. And the only way to get there is to know what your original blood platelet concentration is. So we have a Coulter counter, which is a hematology machine inside the treatment room. Mm -hmm. And we use that same machine again before we do the injection of PRP. So we know exactly what the platelet concentration is on the PRP. And there are very few physicians in the world that have a Coulter counter, hematology counter device inside their PRP room. But that's what we have at Bauman Medical. It sounds like you kind of, excuse my analogy, but you kind of become the Tesla of of electric cars. Like you've put everything you possibly can into into a machine for for your patients, where maybe others have you know have maybe cut corners or or, or missed a step. Oh, absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that we always think about, and you know, whether it's a Tesla or a Porsche, or Ferrari, a lot of these cars, you know, they're not, they're not really thinking how do we cut corners to, you know, make this brake system, you know, less expensive. They're thinking we need to win that next race. So how do we make that suspension or brake system or power drive train, whatever, how do we make it perform better? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just the practice philosophy that we have. And I, I, I constantly reinvest in the practice in that way. And I've done that mainly because I'm a little bit of a gadget freak and I have a closet full of stuff that we have tossed out and don't use anymore. Mm -hmm. But that's, I'm a constant beta tester. I'm always trying to hack it. I'm always trying to hack the system. How can we get a better result for our patients? If our goal is to get a better hair growth result or a longer hair growth result from PRP, how can we best do that? And so I don't think about, well, geez, how can I make the PRP half as expensive I mean, you could probably go down the block and get PRP for a third of the price in Boca, right. you know, what I give it for. But um, but again, you're not going to have the scaffolding. You're not going to have the longevity. You're not going to have the nuance of the of the measurements. You're not going to have a laser treatment before and after. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have it painlessly, that's for sure. They're going to slather some, you know, topical anesthetic gel in your head and good luck because yeah. that doesn't work. Right. You know, that's going to be painful. For sure. Yeah. It's going to so, be like you're in a Prius. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I just that's the type of practice that I have it and and patients who expect and appreciate that kind of value in Mm -hmm. what we provide, whether it's PRP, or the types of lasers that we dispense and prescribe, or the type of um, compound medications that we create. And, and, and have prescribed for us mm-hmm. and the work that we do in hair transplantation. Those patients that understand those nuances and appreciate them, those are the patients that we want in the practice. Absolutely. If you're looking for a PRP coupon, uh, my practice is probably not the right one for you. Right. A Groupon on PRP, you know, is you're not going to find that. At Bauman. You know, at Bauman, yeah. It's no. just not going to work. So, That's fair. you know, I'll send you down the block. Speaking of, of winning the next race, uh, what sort of uh, different advancements in technology are coming that you see in your experience? Like, what's what's next? So there's some things that we're doing right now that we didn't even have a year ago mm-hmm. available for patients. So, for example, one of the other lunchtime treatments is called PDO Grow. And that's the use of an absorbable scaffolding material in conjunction with PRP that actually has been around in medicine for like decades. We're talking like 40 or 50 years. Oh, wow. Okay. And so um, PDO stands for polydioxinone. And polydioxinone was originally designed as a slow-absorbing suture material. And now 
there's been kind of a resurgence of PDO, not for deep sutures in the body, because I certainly used that 30 years ago when I went through my surgical residency, Mm -hmm. but in aesthetic medicine, they're using these tiny filaments, very tiny threads of PDO to create new collagen, tightness, lifting in the skin in aesthetic medicine. And I found out about the use of PDO in the scalp, really almost serendipitously was a, a friend of mine was at a cosmetic and I was at a cosmetic surgery conference and he was telling me about the PDO that they were doing in the face and he said hey you know in the far east they've had some luck with the stuff in the scalp and I'm like what do you mean he's like yeah they you know when they they found when they started to anchor some of these sutures under the skin in the hair bearing areas that it was growing hair mm-hmm. I'm like I never heard of that before so I started to do the research I found a few journal articles that described it in from the far east and I said well let's try it and so, of course, we got a couple of guinea pigs. <clears throat> I mean, patients. No, I'm just teasing. But no, a lot of our patients want to try the latest and greatest. And of course, this of course. is a FDA cleared material. This is not something new in the body, you know, that right. we've never yeah. ever seen before. This is like yeah. millions and millions of, of procedures have been done with PDO, you know, suture material. So it was not a, a far stretch to safely put it into the scalp. So, but we did so. And I will tell you that with our little um, pilot study, the first 10 patients, every single one of those patients had a spectacularly good regrowth. Mm-hmm. Now, we also knew how to pick the patients, which many years ago for lasers and PRP, we weren't so necessarily so good at picking patients. But I picked patients who I thought would be good at, with PRP, sure. and I used the, just the PDO. And it was amazing to see the in- increases in regrowth. Right. And so this past year in January, I think it was January, February, we debuted the results of the clinical trial. At the um, at the South Beach Symposium, which is a very very well respected aesthetic dermatology conference in Miami Beach, okay. and I demonstrated the procedure in front of hundreds of physicians, and it was just very exciting to be able to bring that new technology to the forefront. For sure. And so the demand has exploded. Um, the demand patients want to want to have the procedure. People who have had PRP before, they want the best now. They want something stronger that's mm-hmm. also non surgical. So they're asking for PDO grow. And my colleagues in aesthetic medicine are asking for this procedure so that they can learn how to do it, um, this nuanced technique to not harm the follicles, to get good hair growth of course. in the skin. So Yeah. You've built a, such a, a globally recognized practice. Uh, so now uh, someone who's on the other side of the world uh, who's not able to come see you, can you still help them? So what what ways do you have uh, you know, to access them or what ways can they access your information or... How can you help them? Well, isn't that the beauty of the internet today, right? So uh, from anywhere in the world, you can click on baumanmedical.com and you can get a virtual tour of the practice. You Mm -hmm. can um, see the different types of treatments and procedures that we do. You can take a look at our results, some of the clinical trials that we've done. Um, Everything that's that's been happening, Bauman Medical, for the past 20 years is is permanently tattooed on the internet there. That's great. Um, But probably most importantly is that with the connections now and bandwidth, we can do video conferencing all mm-hmm. across the world. And I will say probably at least a third, if not a half of my consultations today, these days, are done virtually. Interesting. Uh, okay. Patients are finding us uh, through word of mouth, through their friends or family or other professionals that have heard about the work that we've done. Right. And they're contacting us uh, for advice, for prescriptions, for devices like lasers and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they're coming in for hair transplantation. Um, and we do, that's what we do day in and day out. We transplant every single day, Monday through Friday. Right. This is not like a once a month thing at Bauman Medical where we're doing hair transplants like the guy down the block. Right. This is, uh, this is all we do. Yeah. And so I think when you, when, when you focus the practice on just doing one thing, um, that's where we can really, that's where we've really shined. Right. You know, just, just doing the same 
types of procedures and treatments for 20 years and continuing to look for ways to advance. Right. There's a reason why the 9-11 has that same body style and the same layout for so many years. And they've just continued to run that car on the track. Yeah. And that's what we do um, every single day, you know, two to three times a day at Bauman. Right. Well, I'm going to grab your business card on the way out and be sure to come see you if I if I ever run into those issues. Well, for sure. Yeah. Anytime. You can always just, uh, you know, click through on the website, bowmanmedical.com and request that virtual consult, you there know, but yeah, no, we would love to have you down to see the facility. For sure. 12,000 square foot, over a thousand meters square uh, uh, facility of all hair all the time. Yeah. My friends call it the hair hospital. That's great. That sounds a little clinical, but. Yeah. Um, and it smells like lavender. So it's great. Uh, exactly. It's, it's great. Exactly. Dr. Alan Bowman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. me.